Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back everyone to our podcast. And today we're going to chat with Dr. Tini Masupi. Tini is a, is a senior lecturer and assistant program director for the Masters of Medicine in Public Health at the University of Botswana. She has uh, developed her career as a clinician scientist by studying in different institutions in Cardiff, Manchester here in the UK, and also in South Africa. She's a fellow alumnus of the Afiabora Global Health Leadership Fellowship, and she's the first recipient of the new Nathanson Afiabora Global Health Leadership Award. Tini plays an important role in our international society of hypertension community as her country lead for the May Measure Month Hypertension Project and as a member of the Committee for Research and Education. With all that, it is a, it's needless to say that Tini is very passionate about educating new generations to come. And I'd like to say thank you to you, Tini, for being here with us today and sharing with us your stories, which I'm sure is going to be very inspirational to many. Thank you very much for having me. So, Tini, to, uh, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit of your story and how did you get involved with hypertension? Sure. Um, maybe just for purposes of the interview, the, the way my first name is pronounced is tiny, as in something small. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I used to be very small, although not anymore. <laughs> so um, it, it's actually a, a funny story how I came to join um, each society. I was in Cape Town um, as part of my PhD. So I get this email. I can still remember where I was sitting. I get this email from one of the professors here at the University of Botswana, and he's, he, he forwards me this email, and it's about this project which wants to raise awareness about uh, blood pressure across different countries. And he was saying, you know, this is not really my kind of thing. Are you interested? And I was just like, I can't believe this. So immediately I clicked on reply and I said, yes, definitely I am interested without even hearing the details of what it engaged just because it was speaking to raising awareness about hypertension or high blood pressure. So that's how I, I, I got involved. I got in touch with um, the organizers and the rest is history. We're here now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Tiny, like how did you uh, start to uh, not to work on, but like how did you start interacting with the International Society of Hypertension? Yeah, so after that initial introduction from the professor that I, I alluded to earlier on, I got in touch uh, with the team uh, at May Measurement Month. And that was at the very beginning of when it was all starting. So they had organized several meetings to take us through uh, what was going to happen. But also they had indicated that there was going to be, uh, there's a protocol uh, which was going to be shared and we could adapt that to our local settings or our context, uh, but following the overall global um, guidance as far as the protocol was concerned. 
So I started communicating with them. And then I started also building a team this side in Botswana so that we can really work on this exciting new project because this is something that I had not done before and it hadn't been done in, in the country as far as I was aware. So it was mainly a lot of email communication uh, about the project. And and with that, like you now participated like in many committees, like in a few committees uh, at ISH and in the May Measure Month uh, project. So how this, these participations were important for your career progress? Well, um, in, in, in many different ways. Um, the first thing is, is that, as I said, this is something that hadn't been done before. So it gave me the opportunity to work with different people here in the country, but also to work with different people outside of the country. That's number one. So collaborations. And when you collaborate, obviously career-wise, people start to notice. And then also there's been the outputs from the project itself. Remember, it started in 2017. Uh, so there has been several publications from the, the research project itself. And therefore, people do actually read those publications. In fact, um, on the day when I, I got the award for the ISH Fellowship, I, after that, I saw on my phone that I had missed so many, several phone calls from a number that I didn't recognize locally. So when I decided to call them back immediately after the awards were finished and the conference was finished. So I hear this excited voice on the other side. It's like, oh, Dr. Masupe, it's you, it's you. You remember me, I was a drug rep working for this particular drug pharmaceutical company. You know, when you worked as a GP, I used to come and try and sell you blood pressure medication and what works best. And you'd ask me so many questions. And I saw your publication in a big international journal. Oh my God. So she was so excited. And I, was, I just thought, wow. So this is, you know, this is what has happened. But over and above that, I get invited to do talks. I've done talks in other countries. I've done talks in country uh, during commemorations for the uh, World Hypertension Day, which happens in May. I've been invited as a guest speaker, as a main speaker to talk to hypertension. So when I talk hypertension or research, people have started to take notice more than they used to do, I think, anyway, yeah. Even so, uh, in terms of in my own institution, you know, what you do for your research, it does contribute towards your annual appraisal performance and promotion uh, perspectives. So it has contributed quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like, because uh, one thing that you spoke that I, I think is really interesting for people to know is that your work really impacts uh, your community, correct? So, and and that kind of like experience that you had, it was impacting the lives of many uh, patients that may not be aware that they had hypertension. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and the, the, you know, when we would go around in the community, in places where people don't normally go, in shopping malls, small little dingy places, people would say nobody has ever come to actually bring this to me and check my blood pressure and even talk to me about what blood pressure is, what those two numbers mean, the top one and the bottom one, you know, so there'll be so much appreciation and 
thirst for knowing. And people would have very high blood pressures, but not aware. And because sometimes you, you don't have symptoms, they would just be going around, you know, happily ever after with mm-hmm. the really high pressures. And then when you tell them what could potentially happen, that's when they start to realize that maybe I should do something about this. Yeah. And if you don't mind me getting a little bit off track here, like what's the um, hypertension scenario in Botswana? Like uh, how bad is the scenario there? Um, I think from what we we did, we did find that there's uh, quite a, a high prevalence of hypertension in country. I think the national surveillance study quoted around about 20% of the adult population uh, as hypertensive. But also, you know, with even with the lay community, they seem to know almost somebody who has high blood pressure, as it is uh, commonly called. So I think it, it is really a common. But also the other thing I noted was that younger, more and more younger people seem to be diagnosed with um, high blood pressure. So it, it is a, a very, it's, it's quite prevalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, Tiny, like switching to, uh, to your mentoring uh, experiences, um, how, if you need to define like all the mentorship that you received and the mentoring that you has given, so the, the whole package of mentorship, if you need to define that in one word, word which word would be that? A roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Like, do you mind expanding? <laughs> Oh, I think, it, you know, when you're on a roller coaster, coaster, it, it goes up and down mm-hmm. and you have highs where you're screaming because it's, it's exciting. And then it goes low and sometimes you feel a bit scared and you think, was this the right thing to do? So that's, that's how I've experienced it. Most of the time it's very rewarding. And you, you feel very high when your mentees succeed, especially. Other times you do go through challenges with the mentees, especially if you're very involved with them, uh, depending on your type of mentoring. And it can be very taxing and draining and demanding. So that's why I think it's a roller coaster. Perfect. And do you think, uh, do you think mentoring is important? Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt at all. Um, I think when I look back, for me, I think I did get mentoring, but much later on, I think mentoring is important throughout. So when I finished medical school, uh, there was a time when I was just existing, you know, where you, you wake up, you go to work, you do your calls, you come back home and not really thinking well, what do I really want? Where do I want to go now? And somebody saying, well, you can do this and that. Don't do this. Don't do that. So I think it's absolutely critical. Yeah. But when you, when you mentioned that, like you had your uh, mentorship, like a little later, do you, like you didn't have before because you were not aware of like, uh, of what mentorship was, or you didn't have uh, access to, uh, to mentorship? Or mm-hmm. in other words, is if you were aware of like how the importance of mentorship, would you take it advantage of it way before than what you did? Yeah, I think um, 
I needed mentorship, but I didn't know I needed it. That's the mm-hmm. starting point. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Um, but once I had experienced it, then I realized that, wow, I actually needed this a long time ago, if I had known. But I also think it boils down to what one perceives to be the meaning of mentorship in their own understanding. So I think that's, again, a contributor to uh, me thinking that maybe I didn't have early mentorship as I could have had, mainly because I wasn't aware that what this beast called mentorship was and whether what I thought, I thought what I thought mentorship was, whether it was available at the time or not, and how to access it. So it was a, a, a contribution of different factors, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, like, uh, thinking about you as a mentor, uh, mm. what do you think it's, uh, what would, how would you describe your mentorship, your mentoring style? Horizontal. <laughs> I think it's horizontal. <laughs> and... Um, it, it, it's horizontal evolving type of mentorship, I think. I, I don't consider it as static. And I say that because I, when I, I, I tend to reflect, so when I reflect on the mentorship, I realize that I do draw energy from the mentees. So there are some mentees who really have very high positive energy levels. And that's the roller coaster coming in. And then you have mentees who don't have so much high positive energy. Uh, so you have to adapt and be flexible. And you also have to make sure that, or what I try to do is the mentees themselves, they also have mentees. So that when we talk mentorship or what they expect from me or what I'm going through as, a men- as their mentor, they also can experience similar so that it helps them to reflect on what this whole beast called mentorship is. So I describe it as horizontal, flexible type of mentorship. No, that's good. And so you're talking about like this, uh, your relationship with your mentees and how much energy or how much you, you give to it. So now like thinking about that, so what kind of like attitude or uh, traits a good mentee should have in order to really take advantage of uh, a mentorship uh, relationship? Um, I think there's quite a few attributes that or traits that I look for in, in mentees. The first one is motivation. I think they need to also be motivated to engage in this relationship. Um, the, the, the other one is reflexivity. They need to be reflecting on who they are all the time. Um, because I think you learn a lot by reflecting. But should also, they should also be empathic and they should respect the process of mentorship and understand what they want out of it. Because I think if you don't understand what you want out of a mentorship relationship, you may find yourself getting lost and frustrated. But it's also for them to engage with the mentor to say, you know, I I don't know if I'm getting what I'm expecting. 
let's discuss what really this mentorship looks like and what is going to be. And I also like mentor mentees who are problem solvers. When we discuss, they should say, well, I tried this, 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 that. I'm thinking of trying this. And you guide rather than you being the one who solves their problems. And they are also, they listen and they are mentors themselves. So those are the traits that I, 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 I look for. I think like you touch in a very important aspect was the problem solving, because sometimes a lot of people think that just uh, mentors there just to solve your problem. So they just want to bring the problem, but they, yeah. they forget that bringing at least like a uh, perspective of a solution is, mm -hmm. is not only helps the mentor, but also helps them to start becoming, as you said, a mentor or taking control yeah. of their yeah. situation. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so tiny, like a, a lot of people that uh, listen to our podcast and people that we uh, help like with our mentorship program are in a phase that they need to look for new positions or they need to move institutions and, uh, and things like that. Something that you went through like a, a lot. So what advice you give to these people and how to really ident identify a good training environment or a good place that they will uh, become their thrive to be better? I think for one to thrive in a learning environment, first of all, that environment needs to be learner-centered. And I know a lot of people talk about learner-centered and we all mean different things. So for me, it means that the environment needs to be interesting for the learner. They need to feel that they can grow, not only academically, but uh, personally as well. For me, I think you can only grow in an academic way and not grow from a personal perspective. You also have to gain some wisdom while you are learning. And the environment needs to be full of, or it needs to have quite a lot of people who are knowledgeable, who are wise and who can guide, but not dictate. People who make you be what you want to be under the best possible circumstances as you learn and grow. That's, that's how I see it. That's, that's perfect. And Tiny, if you don't mind asking, like, so you've been in some places here in the UK and back in some places uh, and back in some places in Africa. So for you, like you've changed a lot of like you were in places where culturally were completely different. And that's something that our listeners also go through. Like uh, they had to adapt to a new culture like me, too. Like I had to go from Brazil to Canada and from Canada to Glasgow. So three different, completely different countries. Uh, cultures, which like I had like a little of a culture shock. So what would be like, if you don't mind me asking, like what would be your advice for people to uh, to go to really go through in a positive way and this culture shock or how to adapt well to a culture? Yeah, I think one of the challenges with adapting uh, is the issue of expectations and entitlements and misaligned agendas. I think those issues 
if they are not clear in one's head, especially the expectations and the agenda, then people will find it difficult to adapt. The other thing to do is when you are in a place where you are different, and I have been in that place where I have been different. In, in our medical school, there were only two of us who were from Africa in our year. So you adapt by, you learn the culture where you are functioning or where you, you've gone, where you've visited. You learn what they do. You learn that in the UK, people eat fish and chips. You learn that they, <laughs> they, this is what they do for Christmas. So once you, you've understood that, then it helps you to understand some of the things that they do to you or they do for you or they ask you to do. Mm. You also need to then have your own expectations, engage them and see their reasonability. Because sometimes I think we have expectations that are unreasonable or unrealistic and that causes frustration and people then pull back and they don't engage and they don't try and fit into the society. At the same time, you remember who you are and you don't, you don't get lost in all this. So it's, 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 it's a lot of multitasking that I don't think people really um, are aware that this is actually a full-time occupation <laughs> where you need to multitask, understand your environment, understand yourself and appreciate your environment. And so that, yeah. So, and like tiny, and like when you are adapting or like going through your studies and everything, you, you may have encountered people that you wanted to uh, exchange a conversation or have like a discussion, but those people were either intimidating or you were like afraid of them for some reason, because they're too <laughs> senior or something. So what would you do in order to overcome that? imposter syndrome and be like no i need to talk to the person i need to get this done so what, what's your secret yeah. to talking to people um i think it took me a long time but you know there's a theory called the stages of change it's where you contemplate pre-contemplation contemplate and so forth <laughs> so what i would do is i would first of all i would avoid the person and just engage with them at a distance I would be around when others are engaging with them and study them. Then I would try and get information about them anywhere I could, possibly either from other people or from what they've written or elsewhere. Then as I start to think I'm getting to slightly understand this person, then maybe I'll start off by writing maybe email to them before I can make a face-to-face. -face. You know, coming to a face-to-face, -face, I have to practice. And that goes to even practicing the greeting, the first ever greeting I'll, I'm going to exchange with them. It's going to be, you need to not look uh, silly. You need to not waste their time. So when I did my Afia Bora Fellowship, Leadership Fellowship, somebody taught us the elevator speech. So this is where you need to, given 30 seconds, you need to be able to impress, approach, talk to somebody that you're not familiar with, but maybe that you admire. So if you get into an elevator or a lift with them, 
by the time you go from uh, ground floor to second floor, you should have given them the information that they need to make the right impression. So I constantly also remember that as I try and engage with people that I maybe intimidate me. And there are a lot of people who intimidate me, I can tell you. <laughs> that, that was a great advice. Like completely opposite of what I do, but I, I love it. It was like, I need to take that advice because I'm very like, uh, I don't know, open book and uh, extroverted. So like, I really... Ah. I really no, I'm, I'm I've, quite introverted. So, I would, <laughs> so like, maybe I stalk like a lion first study. <laughs> I even took notes here. It's like good advice on how to approach people. So I need to listen and listen to this uh, podcast now. <laughs> Thank you, Tiny. Um, so now just switching gears to uh, diversity and inclusion. So uh, I think like now uh, people are becoming more and more aware of like barriers in terms of diversity and inclusion. Uh, so in your opinion, what do you think is the biggest barrier around that theme? And how, what do you think we can do to change that, especially in hypertension research? Yeah, um, I think as I've said before, expectations. People always think funding. Yes, it can be a barrier. But I think for me, expectation and misalignment of agendas I think those are the main barriers where I expect certain things that speak to my agenda, but others also have their own agenda and they also have their own expectations. And these two things collide or they don't um, work together. So yes, funding is, is another um, important factor but I think it starts with the individual, which is why I've started at individual level before I go to maybe a system type of level. And for me um, to, to really overcome these, I think I like to introspect and reflect. I think if a lot of people sat back and reflected on how we interact with other people, a lot of misunderstandings and misalignments would be solved. But also not fearing to speak up where you see that, you know what? I actually have the skill. I may be of a different uh, personality, diversity, background, ethnicity, but I do bring certain skills. I do bring certain knowledge. And I can contribute and contribute fruitfully. And therefore, I can also have people's audience. Because sometimes I think when diversity issues rear their head, the issue of having audience with important people, people can kind of draw back and feel that maybe they are not able to do that. So I think for me, those are important. Even with the funding issue, sometimes it's not a question of I always need uh, certain people to give me something. It's also an issue of thinking, what about me? What are the resources that I have in me that I can use to try and overcome the different diversity related types of issues? I guess you also have to have a degree of advocacy within you as an individual. That's, that, that's my take really on that one yeah and, and and tiny if you don't mind asking you as like a clinician scientist so i 
I participate in a few uh, Twitter chats on uh, clinical papers, like uh, and um, papers like that uh, did some clinical studies. And a lot of times we ask questions about like, so what's, did you see any gender differences or any racial differences in your results? And most of the answers are like, oh, that wasn't observed or the study wasn't powered enough for that, or it wasn't the focus of our study. So do you think this will change in future research? Do you think now, uh, one, do you think there is a need for people to include more uh, diversity in their uh, populational work or their clinical work? And you think like that will change where treatments are going to be based on, let's say, if you compare like men versus women, treatment for women is going to be more based on evidence related to women's health rather than studies just studying uh, men. I think the changes are already happening and they are likely to continue to happen. Um, if you just think about it, we, we do have obviously the hierarchy of evidence as far as research is concerned, you know, our clinical trials. But more and more people are engaging in participatory type of action research um, where you actually are working with the communities or the, the potential recipients of the problem that you are trying to solve, where you, you decide together what the actual problem is. That's why I'm saying the changes are already happening. There are some new knowledge management techniques. Maybe they are not so new, but we just didn't observe them as researchers previously. And those um, are requiring or dictating that you engage a lot more with your potential researchees or research participants. And therefore they have a lot more to say. They have that tacit knowledge and you can bring your expertise to see how you can innovate using this tacit knowledge that you gain from uh, your potential participants. So definitely, yeah. And I think with more of that happening, we will find that the evidence that we generate will become more and more relevant to even those um, minority or those people who maybe have been left out in research. You know how even in research ethics, uh, clinical trials would exclude pregnant women quite often. Mm -hmm. And then you have treatment, but you don't know whether it works. So now these, even that um, discourse is changing or has changed mm -hmm. to say, but do we actually need to exclude people just because they are pregnant? So the train has started um, its journey towards further change on that one. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, Tiny, like the International Center of Hypertension has the Women in Hypertension Research Committee. And one of the biggest problems that they're trying to tackle is the leaking pipeline where throughout the career, women tend to leave uh, the research or the scientist's career due to many uh, uh, commitments like family and, and you name it. So what advice would give to women in hypertension research for them to stay and not leave uh, this career? Um, I think the, the, the starting point for me is why do they leave? Because if we know why they leave, then we would come up with better solutions of making them stay. I, I must admit it's not easy being 
um, a woman scientist with a family who's married. But I think reasons for not staying are a lot more complex than that. And we need to gain a much deeper understanding of what those reasons are before we, I mean, I think people have talked about these reasons why people live over the years, but we still haven't gotten it right. So the other question is, do we know the reasons, but we don't have the energy or the will to actually tackle those deep rooted issues that are causing women to leave? I think for me, that's the key question. I know it's not a solution per se, but I, I, I prefer solutions that are evidence-based. <laughs> but I, but yeah. I think like one step towards the solution is the, to be aware of the situation. And I think you're very clear on that. Is one yeah. asking what's your problem? And the one is like, what we're doing and are we doing right? Or whatever approach you're doing is being effective towards mm -hmm. that problem. And I think like, yeah, as you said, there is no right answer at the moment. Yeah. And we're reaching, out, reaching the end of our chat here, uh, Tiny. So just to finish out uh, our interview, uh, as you are aware, COVID-19 pandemic was very harsh in the career of like many researchers. So we had like lab closures and people uh, being uh, need to work from home and teach like uh, uh, online plus family obligations with kids out of school and all the problems that probably you're well uh, rehearsed on that. So what kind of uh, suggestions you give to people to be able to overcome problems that COVID-19 may have brought to their career development? Um, I think the first thing is to remember that there is no one size fits all solution to these challenges. Therefore, we need to identify everyone's individual uniqueness. That's number one. Because once we've done that, then we identify what makes them tick even during COVID-19. We have seen women, for example, who are street vendors. They still go out and they sit there and they sell their stuff in the streets despite COVID. So another way is to now, it's almost like cognitive therapy, I think, uh, to try and get people to change their mindset in terms of the way they think. in terms of the way they solve problems, in terms of the way they see problems. Because while COVID-19 has caused several challenges, it has also created millionaires in some places because people have recreated themselves. They have thought, what can I do to get myself out of this? What is the drive? and they have gone on and excelled and done things differently. We've seen even with conferences now, we are having them virtually. So COVID-19 came and it also taught us a lot of other ways of doing things that compared to how we used to do things. 
but you need to appeal to the individual need and drive. What do they need? It's almost like, you know, Maslow's a hierarchy of needs where some people will be at a stage where they need just shelter and they are happy. But other people will have the drive to say, I still want to reach the pinnacle of recognition by my peers at the height of the pyramid. So I want to get there, COVID or no COVID. And this is how I'm going to do it. I think people need a lot of motivation. They need a lot of encouragement. They need a lot of understanding of the science behind COVID and its transmission so that the myths and the fears that are out there do not also weigh them down as they struggle to adapt to the new environment. That's my take. That was, that was fabulous, uh, Tiny. Thank you so much. So uh, with that, I'd like to finish by saying thank you again for your time and for sharing with us your wisdom, your experiences. experiences. And I'm sure this is going to be uh, very well received by our uh, listeners. They will love it. Thank you so much, Tiny. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I look forward to listening to the podcast as well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.